The Athletic. The Carabao Cup resumes two weeks today. Cut and pasting. Day 17 at the World Cup. Portugal, from the goat to the kid. As Gonzalo Ramos comes in for Ron, runs riot and tells sheepish Swiss, enough of your yakking. Meanwhile, Morocco, Spain, the Atlas Lions in the quarters at last against the shot-shy Spanish. We'll round up all of that. Have a quick check on your moments of the World Cup so far and have a very special preview of one of Friday's quarterfinals with Ryan Barbel. It's totally the World Cup. Wanted by Live Score Bet. Yes, indeed, listener. It's an extra special edition of Totally at the World Cup today with some remarkable action to talk about and some great people here to do the chatting. Got Duncan Alexander. All right, Duncan. Hello, James. It's a big welcome back to Tim Spears. Hi, James. Woo. And who's this on the line from Doha? That looks like a guy we used to know called Daniel Story. All right, Daniel. Good evening slash good morning. Well, indeed. Oh, because it's late with you, isn't it? In your foreign it parts. Is. Yeah, with your suntan. Woof. And you, I've just been to one of the games of the tournament. Crikey. Have you been having a good time out there, Daniel? You know, with the requisite ethical asterisks. Yeah, it's... Um, I mean, I've had one hospital visit. Uh, so that's about half of the course, which is good. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it has felt a very manic tournament and never more so than the game I've just watched, which is one of the most bizarre football experiences I've ever seen for various reasons. Oh, well, I, I'm intrigued. I'm sure you are too, listener, as to what those reasons are. We'll get onto that game very, very shortly. It was, of course, Portugal 6, Switzerland just the 1. Portugal thus going through to the quarterfinals where they will take on Morocco, who took Spain to extra time and then penalties and then put them out. Morocco still yet to concede a single goal to an opposition player, and that includes today's penalty shootout. Remarkable. We're going to start, though, with Portugal-Switzerland. Tuesday night's game. Daniel was there. It sounded like this. Gonzalo! 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 Gonzalo Ramos! What a story. Portugal through to the quarterfinals. Gonzalo Ramos onto the, uh, the top of the transfer target list for clubs all over Europe. The backstory here, of course, was that uh, Cristiano Ronaldo had been benched and 21-year-old Ramos, with only his fourth international cap ever, took his place, heading up Portugal as they, uh, as they face Switzerland in this crucial game. And boy, did Ramos seize his opportunity. Daniel, tell us about what it was like. It was, it was absolutely bizarre. From, from the moment when I was travelling to the game and reports were coming through on Portuguese media that Ronaldo was going to be dropped, I think we, we possibly expected Santos to take the captain's armband off him, but maybe not to drop him. Uh, and then this kind of tidal wave of, on the metro here, there are a lot of Qatari and uh, Arabic fans going to games, particularly the knockout stages now, as, as fans of other teams go home. And everyone had Ronaldo shirts on and chanted Ronaldo chants on the metro and chanted it all the way to the stadium and then obviously got to the stadium and found out that he wasn't starting. That was odd enough. And then for Gonzalo Ramos to, at the end of tonight in 73 minutes, has now scored three more World Cup knockout goals than Cristiano Ronaldo. Is this kind of bizarre, these sort of redemption arcs are meant to take place over like two years, not 75 minutes. 
And then yeah. there was still this like weird testimonial frenzy vibe when the crowd were chanting Ronaldo's name for about 15 minutes before he came on and like booing every time he got the ball. And it kind of felt like it was pretty bleak for Ronaldo, I think, uh, having watched that. And he played the part well. He went and celebrated, but it felt really bleak towards the end. Mm. This coming across against the backdrop of his reported decision to join a club in Saudi Arabia, Al Nasser, which in many ways suggests that he himself feels he doesn't necessarily deserve a place at the very uh, top of uh, the, the, the footballing pyramid anymore. Gonzalo Ramos's goals, I mean, the first one caught, I think, the entire world by surprise. I know what you hit past summer, as Duncan Alexander here tweeted. Duncan. Yeah, I mean, it was one of those one of those narrative goals where I'm sure Ronaldo was sat on the bench going, well, I'm, I'll get on at some point, let's hope. Let's hope he doesn't do too well in this game. Um, and lo and behold, he hits one of the best shots uh, I think we've seen at the World Cup. I mean, there's basically a space about a football size that he could have got that past summer. Um, and he did it. And it was, yeah, tremendous. Incredible. Tim, do you have any sympathy for people who went along to a Portugal match to see Cristiano Ronaldo and he wasn't playing? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, a lot. <clears throat> um, yeah, it's a remarkable uh, story for Ramos to, to be the man and um, somebody James somebody and I'm not going to say who uh, predicted on the Athletic two weeks ago that Ramos would be the breakthrough star of the tournament uh, I'm not sure who it was maybe maybe one of the listeners can find out um, but yeah there's been a bit of a clamour for him back in Portugal I mean he, he just scores goals he scored he's the top scorer in, in Portugal this year scored 9 in 11 uh, the under 21s for Portugal as well. He scored 14 and 18 over the past sort of couple of years. I think he was top scorer at the under 19 Euros as well. So he is he is a goal. I mean, he's, he's a proper he's a proper goal scorer as well. One of his former teammates, um, Carlos Vinicius, said, "With Ramos around, there are no loose balls in the box." And I think we kind of saw that with well, with at least a couple of his goals tonight. So yeah, his, his movement, his instinct, and his and his finishes all all top class. Does this change how you feel about Portugal and their prospects in this tournament, Daniel? Yeah, massively. That's the most dominant performance I've seen in this tournament so far. Uh, Switzerland are, are pretty good and they made Fabian Scher and Manuel Akanji and Granit Xhaka and Remo Freuler this kind of block that Switzerland have had, two centre-backs and two central midfielders, look completely ordinary and they scored different types of goals. You know, they scored from a set piece. They scored from passing moves. I thought the way Jao Felix, the, the space he got to drift in from the left and the same with Bernardo on the right. And then Bruno, who we know will enjoy being this kind of figurehead leader of an attack without Ronaldo there. It, it, it does seem to make a huge amount of sense, just as it seemed to make a huge amount of sense for Manchester United. And, you know, I watched Brazil. I was at Brazil last night and they were really dominant. And now I've watched Portugal and I think they're really dominant. I've seen France a couple of times and, the standard in this tournament, I think, is of the final four, six, seven, eight teams is going to be probably like nothing else I can remember in my lifetime. I think, yeah, you're totally right in terms of the teams that are getting through. I think that the, the most impressive teams thus far have all had pretty fluid front fours and Portugal probably didn't until tonight when, as Tim was saying it, Ramos offered you know, a whole new dimension of, of play, really. And I think that does put Portugal straight into that into that category of teams that can, can go on and win it. Um, I mean, obviously, they're, they're up against Morocco next, which will, it's, you know, that attack versus arguably the best defence in the, in the tournament. But you'd fancy them on, on tonight's form to, uh, to find a way. You've got to say it's, it's a huge vindication for the manager, Fernando Santos, who's kind of seen as this, you know, dour, stubborn, sort of craggy, 
old guy who was refusing to drop his favourites. I mean, a year ago they had Rui Patricio was in goal, they had Mitinho in midfield, uh, Ronaldo up front, and you know they're all the wrong side of thirty-four, but done so much for this for this team over the years, and 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 he has dropped all of them now, and he's the one he has kept is is Pepe. Um, what is he, 38, 39? And obviously he plays well tonight and scores. So, you know, he has, whether it, he wouldn't have bowed to public pressure, but he has he has brought the next generation through. And I think I think we've really seen what Portugal can offer tonight. So fair play to him. The other thing I would say is, you're talking to a few Portuguese journalists before the game, Ronaldo back home, it was a popular decision to, to leave him on the bench, partly because they think he can be a great super sub as well as just getting him out of the team. But doing that at the same time as dropping João Cancelo and not playing Ruben Neves, that made it an even bigger call because Cancelo is seen in the Premier League as probably the most all-round defensive midfielder, fullback we've got. So to do both of those things is huge because he's already lost fullbacks. He's lost uh, Mendes and he's lost Danilo Pereira to injury. So it wasn't just the Ronaldo call tonight. Everything he touched kind of turned to goals because Rafa Guerrero plays and bombs on down the left in the second half. Everything worked. It wasn't just the Ronaldo move. The one thing you might say about this is that their defence is still a little bit untested. I'm not sure how much of a of a going over they got from the Swiss in this game. But yeah, Guerrero with an absolutely fabulous goal. Perhaps the best of, of the entire evening, in fact. Uh, Kanji pulling one back for the Swiss. Uh, Ramos with the hat-trick. Rafa Liao. Mm. Yeah. Trademark, almost a trademark finish for him at AC Milan. Um, I mean, yeah, you're right about them defensively. If you remember that Opening game against Ghana, they conceded a couple of goals, and then Diogo Costa, the keeper, almost almost dropped a third in in stoppage time. So, apart from that, you know, they rested pretty much everyone against South Korea. So you couldn't really read too much into that defeat. So they haven't been tested too much. Whether Morocco will be that team, maybe not. There was a weird uh, kind of ley line vibe going on to another game in World Cup history actually, because um, Pepe scored. He's the oldest player to score in a knockout game. Um, second oldest overall after Roger Miller scored against uh, Russia back in 1994. And Ramos ended the game with four goal involvements, three goals and an assist. And he's the first player to do that since Oleg Zelenko, who got five goals and an assist in that game. So, yeah, sometimes these, these matches kind of link up beyond the, uh, beyond the comprehension of humanity. Without wanting to uh, try and out Duncan Duncan, uh, <laughs> Also in that game, the gap between age and goal scorers was something like 18 years and mm. 25 days with Pepe uh, and Ramos, which is, I think, only beaten in recent history by that Selenko game, which the, the other goal scorer in that game, I think Radchenkov, was also like 18 years and 20 days younger than uh, Rodgers and Mir. So, yeah, suddenly that stat felt better before I said it but <laughs> no no it was, <laughs> it's also it's also the first knockout hat-trick since uh, Thomas Scaravi for Czechoslovakia against Costa Rica back in 1990 that's probably enough stats at this point yeah I feel I'm like the, the, the referee in a, in, in a stat boxing match here I've got nothing to offer by the way sorry <laughs> anyway Portugal will be facing Morocco who put Spain out on Tuesday afternoon looking like as Duncan was saying possibly the meanest event in the tournament we'll talk about Tuesday afternoon's action next This is the Totally Football Show, sponsored by LifeScore Bet, the home of squads. Squads is a weekly free-to-play game. You reveal five players across the week which make up your squad, and you can earn cash each time they score in the selected games. 
The cash amount is decided by LiveScore Bet's prize wheel and can range from 10p up to £50 per goal, which you can spend once the final player is revealed. Find out more and play squads for yourself for free at LiveScoreBet.com or by downloading the LiveScore Bet app on Android and iPhone. It's over 18s only and full terms and conditions apply. Please bet responsibly and be gambleaware.org. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Ashraf Hakimi, Yesaid Ashraf, Yesaid Ashraf, goal! 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 Allah Yusuf! Allah Yusuf! Rocco Spain was goalless after 90 and goalless still after 120, so it went to penalties where Morocco did Spain to reach their first ever World Cup quarterfinal. They're only the fourth African team to reach the last eight, the others being Cameroon in 1990, Senegal in 2002 and Ghana in 2010. They're also the first side ever managed by an African to reach the quarterfinals, with Walid Redraghi achieving that feat within 100 days of taking the job, which is pretty remarkable. To gauge the reaction and the size of Morocco's achievement, let's speak to Maher Mazahi, who joins us now. Hello, Maher. Hey, everyone. It's nice to be able to see everyone on Zoom. Yeah, indeed so. Nice to see you too. Maher, extraordinary events on Tuesday with Morocco conquering their first ever World Cup quarter final. What's, what's the reaction been like back in Morocco? Scenes everywhere, not just in Morocco. Obviously, in all the major cities, Rabat, Marrakesh, Casablanca, Fez, Tangiers, also in European capitals. Uh, I've heard, I've seen London, I've seen Brussels, Amsterdam, and the Champs-Élysées in Paris is absolutely flooded with Algerians, Moroccans, and Tunisians, everyone celebrating this historic victory. The penalties, which, Daniel, you missed because you were getting to the other game, but extraordinary, uh, extraordinary performance, first of all, from Morocco's keeper Bono, but but also that that final decisive moment when Hakimi stepped up to take the kick that would put them into the quarterfinals, and pulls off a Panenka. It was an interesting one because leading into the penalty shootouts, I mean, the last time we had seen Morocco in an important penalty shootout was the 2019 Africa Cup of Nations where they were eliminated against Benin, a team whose mascot is the Squirrels. And this time around, sorry, that time around, Yassine Bono hadn't saved a single penalty shot. So we were all kind of iffy, you know, like, how's it going to go this time? And also Hakim Ziyech missed a very important penalty uh, at the end of regulation in that match. And I thought it was a real test of mental strength, of mental fortitude. I mean, Bonu goes the right direction every single way. And I thought the penalties were pretty well taken, with the exception of the third one, uh, Better Benun. Um, but yeah, just incredible scenes at the very end, though. You see the, the players, you know, swarming one another, celebrating with the fans in communion. I thought it was just great to see. Mm. Hakimi, of course, against the country of his birth. Interesting, he didn't go for the Mbolo, I won't celebrate out of respect uh, reaction. 
probably fair. Yeah, it's an interesting one because he has, at the age of 24, 58 caps and eight goals, which is already, you know, a stellar international career for anybody. And that really took him from, you know, being a, a promising prospect, really, to being, he's already etched, I think, in all-time Moroccan footballing folklore. People, I think, pretty much know Ashraf Hakimi's footballing story. He grew up uh, quite poor, actually, in Hetafe, in Madrid suburbs. He um, he very quickly, after playing one year at Hetafe, uh, joined uh, La Castilla, Real Madrid's uh, footballing academy, coached by Zinedine Zidane, given his first opportunity in football by Zinedine Zidane in 2017, in the midst of Real Madrid's, you know, uh, consecutive three three Champions League consecutive run. But for some reason, it just seems like he always has to prove himself over and over again. He was promising for Real Madrid. They send him on loan to Dortmund. They have a buyback clause. He goes on loan again to Dortmund. They still don't want to buy him Inter Milan. And, and it's just been great seeing him level up every single year. And now he's, I think, without a doubt, one of the best attacking fullbacks in the world. Mm. Everyone raving as well, Mahir, about Sofian Amrabat, his performance in this game. But that, that's that been a constant for a while. Yeah, it's there are players like that, you know, where they perform much better for their country than their club and vice versa. His brother, Nordin Amrabat, he was a decent player. He played for Watford. He played for, you know, a few different clubs here and there. But with Morocco, he was always great. Um, just for some reason, when they pull on that that tunic, when they pull on that shirt, they manage to elevate their game. And Sofiane Amrabat is definitely a case of that. Is it fair to say, Maher, that Morocco have a history of, of being one of those teams that just blows the big occasions? And as such, how much of a surprise is it for you that, that they pulled this one off? So, so it's a mix. Because on one hand, trailblazing in, in, at the World Cup for African football is very much part of their DNA because they qualify for the 1970 World Cup. That was like the, the first uh, African participation at a World Cup after the 1938 Egypt one. So they, they qualify for their very first time. 1986, they become the first African nation to make it to the knockout stages. And then obviously now they have a chance to make to be the very first to make it to the semifinals. So they, they mix and match. They have great performances where they have historical achievements. And then at the same time, they're also very capable of letting you down, often against lower opposition, not the traditional power footballing powerhouses. So it's, it's a very much a mixed bag with Morocco. In, in Doha, when Morocco won on penalties, it was as if the team they supported had won. Like There was mass celebrations because they had won, which I assume is a, a just a geographical thing of like, these guys are close and it's not a European team. Is that the same in North Africa? Like you said, Tunisians and Algerians. We wouldn't really get that in Europe, but is it kind of all together, like supporting Morocco? Well, I think there's a historical context there. So especially when comparing it to Europe. So for example, again, some people don't know this, but in 1966, African nations boycotted the World Cup because they wanted at least one guaranteed place. Uh, you know, African nations boycotted apartheid South Africa for, for decades on end. So we very much have this thing in African football where you sort of have to be unified. Uh, we feel like to, to sort of impose ourselves on the global stage. Until very recently, until Gianni Infantino, really, uh, African nations have voted as a bloc in FIFA Congresses. So I think that's part of it. That's some of the solidarity you'll see across the continent. But then what you're also talking about is, you know, pan-Arab solidarity. And I think, you know, we talk about this being an Arab World Cup, and that's a very loose term because, I mean, I, you know, I have probably more in common with somebody from France than I do with somebody from Yemen. But it still does exist. It's still There are still mechanisms like the Arab League. There, you know, you meet a Yemeni and he'll be like, oh, yeah, it's good to meet you, my Muslim brother, my Arab brother. And just there's some some warmth there. So I think Qatar and I think the locals were quite happy to at least have an Arab team. And I'm saying this as I'm doing air quotes, uh, make it at least to the quarterfinals of this tournament. I think that's that's great for them.
How important is it as well that they've done it with the first ever African manager to, to reach that point in, in Riragi? He's a star. Uh, we've spoken, I think, during the Africa Cup of Nations on the Totally Football Show about uh, this new blueprint in African football, how they're giving chances to former internationals. And it started with Senegal's Aliou Cisse, um, and he's done a fantastic job over the last seven years. Uh, Algeria copied that that model with uh, Jamal Belmadi in 2019, also to very much success. And then now we're seeing it all over the place. Uh, Guinea with Kabadiawara. We're seeing it Mali with Eric Sekouchele. We're seeing it Benny McCarthy, I'm sure, is going to get a South Africa job very soon. And, and the most recent example is Walid Regragi. And it's worked because Regragi, especially in contrast to the former coach, Vahid Halilovzic, he's very much of a unifier. He's the kind of guy that's going to put his arm around your shoulder and he's going to get you to play for him. He said this about Hakim Ziyech. Hakim Ziyech, we know, can be pouty and he can be broody and moody. But he's telling, he often says in the press, if you show him love, he's going to kill himself trying to fight for you. That, that's what he said on two occasions during this World Cup. So Regragi, for me, is, is very good at man managing, especially. And tactically, I think he set up his defensive side very, very well. They play this 4-3-3 where they spring you uh, counterattacks on you. They, they hit you on, on set pieces as well. And he's only conceded in eight matches now one deflected own goal. I mean, that's that's a great record. And in tournament play, where you can sort of get by, you know, playing good defense. And then when you have a goalkeeper like Yassin Bunu, I mean, that, that gives you a chance against anybody. So uh, great job by him overall. The prospects for the Portugal game do look complicated, though not least because of the number of injuries that Morocco picked up in this clash with, with Spain. I, I don't know how long-term those those knocks are going to be, but Sufal, Saiz, Aguero, all, all having to leave the field. Or actually, I think Saiz had to stay on even though he'd done his hamstring. Mm. What, what do you think about their prospects against Portugal? Yeah, it's a weird one because Morocco have actually been playing, their fullbacks, especially Hakimi and Mazraoui, have been playing with knocks throughout this tournament. Um, I don't think their depth is actually that good. I think Regragi loves his 11, 12, 13 player rotation. He doesn't like to, to really dig into the bench uh, past that. So that's why them using their five substitutions today and it going well, I think was, it was a, a great deal. It's a great boost of confidence for them. Now against Portugal, look, I mean, they weren't favorites on paper against Spain today. Spain are obviously the more talented side. Portugal are probably going to be the more talented side. So how do you beat a side when you're outgunned, when you know you have players that are you know much better than you on the field? Well, you beat them with tactics and you beat them with intangibles. And I think this Morocco side has a lot of intangibles going for them. I mean, one of them is the home field advantage that we've already spoken about at length. The other is just, I don't know, sometimes you can feel this sort of momentum, this zeitgeist behind, you know, a national team. I, I can sort of feel it now with Morocco. They do like quirky things like they invite all of the players' parents uh, to stay with the with the team at the team hotel. And you see these really heartwarming viral photos of, you know, the Moroccan players like Hakimi, you know, kissing his mother after. And it's just, it's all warm and fuzzy. And I think that actually uh, does motivate a lot of the players as well. So I think the intangibles, you know, the home field advantage, uh, Walid Regragi setting them up tactically, that's how they're going to have to be Portugal. But at this stage of the competition, they're not going to be scared of anybody. They're playing with house money now. So just, you know, have at it. Meher Mazahi. All right, Tim, you live blogged this game. Before the penalties, we had 120 minutes with no goals and from Spain, only one shot on target. I, I normally hate games like this, but I, I actually found it really absorbing, to be honest. Um, it, it just Morocco kind of walking wounded at the end. You know, we mentioned the injuries there. Saiz had one hamstring left at the end. I, I couldn't believe it when he stayed on. Um, Masroi and Hakimi, probably two of the best uh, fullbacks at the tournament, you know, and you you lose one of them, they're all absolutely shattered. Um, 
they had lots of energy in the first half and then that all just vanished in the second half. But yeah, I really enjoyed it. Obviously, the penalties were incredible. I made a really big mistake of committing to adding emojis to to each penalty, oh. as in like the tick and the cross right. to signify exactly what was happening. Yeah. And got to penalty sort of seven, seven or eight or whatever it was, and I was still adding in all the emojis at the bottom. Well, I can't imagine what the Spanish ones looked like. But uh, oh, do you mean just the flags, or were they no, kind no, of just reflective the, the, of the, their state of the ticks and the crosses? You know, oh, for, right. for where the state of playing well, the penalties. Emoji historians would know that's only the second time you've had a pure row of uh, red X's, although I'm not sure. Mm. They existed in 2006. I mean, X's, yeah, but... The concept of an X, yeah. Right. Even Japan scored a penalty. I don't know what was going on with Spain, who, whose manager, Luis Enrique, had talked about how his, his players had been off and practised thousands of penalty kicks. Yeah, it was a suspiciously round number. I bet they didn't practise them with 10, 15, 20, 25,000 people whistling, which the, the noise, apparently, in that stadium, when I, I, I've seen penalty shootouts at AFCON it's particularly in the final where there was just like they seem to make this huge huge amount of noise time put off players and the Spain players did look like Busquets looked a bit frightened with his penalty I thought they're very tentative um and it's kind of Spain going back to a you know I think newer football fans maybe kind of see Spain as this sort of dominant force particularly obviously winning three tournaments in a row 2008 2010 and 2012 but Historically, they lose a lot of penalty shootouts. They've now overtaken England for penalty shootout defeats at World Cups. And they struggle to get through tournaments. You know, they, that was the fifth knockout game in a row where they'd gone to extra time. They do struggle to break teams down. They obviously won 7-0 in the first game and everyone was like, they're back. But they weren't back because their, their next two goals, their final two goals of the tournament, came from around 2,700 passes, which... Now, we know you can break a team down in different ways, but it did become almost self-parody in, in parts of that game. It was, it was ridiculous. A thousand passes today for, for one shot on target. Um, I, 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 it's, it's crazy. I didn't watch the Costa Rica game, I must admit, but I, I, I watched them against Germany, Japan and Morocco, and I just find them, I find them really dull. Mm. Like, aesthetically, very nice. Technically excellent. You know, some people will sort of pleasure themselves silly over, over over watching that style of football. But where's the variety? You know, where's the where's the di diamondism? It's um, heading home to Spain. Well, yeah, exactly. Well, mm. well, Luis Enrique after the game said he was he was really happy with the performance, and and, and really? he said, yeah, he, he said they represented my style and my idea, and they did what I wanted them to. So it, it's on him, really. Mm, well, they've only won two of their ten major tournament matches that they've had under Luis Enrique in ninety minutes. Uh, those victories coming against Slovakia and Costa Rica. So what the future is for his tenure, I mean, well, conjecture time, but uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see what uh, what happens there. But out they go, and Morocco goes through to the quarterfinals, which start on Friday with Croatia, Brazil, and Netherlands, Argentina. And then on Saturday, you've got England, France, and Morocco, and Portugal. We'll be looking ahead to one of those Friday quarterfinals very, very shortly. But before that, these 17 days that we've had, that you've had there, Daniel, we've had here. What have, you, what have your highlights been? Daniel, what's your highlight been of, the, of this opening stretch? I'll stick to football and say I think probably two moments stick out that I've watched live. The fourth Brazil goal last night, which may be recency biased, but was just a glorious thing. It was like kind of... Carlos Alberto goal for the TikTok generation. It was just, it was magnificent. It was kind of pass, 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 little loop cross and finish. It was gorgeous. Uh, but also the Japan turnaround 
was extraordinary because it just completely caught me off guard. They were awful in the first half and then just kind of this, this turnaround to break Germany and kind of set into motion this kind of German slight implosion and, and all of that. That, that was a, a brilliant, brilliant day. The Japanese fans in Doha are by far the most entertaining. They're brilliant. I mean, that, that Group E is the kind of the, the sort of uh, free radical of the World Cup, isn't it? Because we all thought it was the strongest group in some senses with Spain, Spain and Germany, but it's the only group not to have any teams in the quarterfinals. So it was just mad, like Costa Rica losing 7-0 and then at one point towards the end basically being through it, you know, mm. at one point. And I do think that the, there was a lack of quality in the first sort of two rounds of games, but it did set up one of the, the most memorable sort of, you know, match day threes at a World Cup, I can remember. Absolutely. Those, those two or three minutes when Spain and Germany were both heading out, possibly my, <laughs> my favourite bit so far. Tim? Probably that. I think it was three days in a row, the, the climax to the groups last week. I think it started with Australia mm. uh, dumping Denmark out. Then you had the Poland-Mexico fair play record as it was for about 10 minutes. Uh, you had Lukaku missing his sitters. <laughs> Belgium getting dumped out, Germany getting dumped out, and then the South Korea last-minute winner to, to top it all off. Amazing three days. Incredible. Amazing. Can I also try and out Duncan Duncan again, mm. as that seems to be my thing? Just saw a stat before coming on the show that said that Italy haven't won a knockout game at the World Cup since the 2006 final. Spain haven't won a knockout game at the World Cup since the 2010 final. And Germany haven't won a knockout game since the 2014 final, which is absolutely ludicrous, really. I feel that's a bit harsh on the Italians, given they haven't actually been present to win any. I mean, they haven't lost any at the last two. They haven't lost a single match at the last I mean, the two thing, World Cups. The, I mean, no Italian fan has ever seen their team win a, a knockout game on an iPhone because it wasn't invented the last <laughs> time. They <laughs> so there's that. All right. Uh, oh, lots of listeners have written in with their favourite bits. Mick Bauer says Cameroon, Serbia. Do you remember that? The 3-3. Three, three. I'm out here and it's the only game I could get to on the FIFA app. Felt like I got the booby prize, but I lucked out and got the game of the tournament. I was going to say, Abu Bakar's Francesco Totti scoop. Yeah. Uh, the, is it Cucciao? Cucciao. 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 Yeah. Bridget James speaks for many of us when he says, Chesney Hawks, the highlight. Dublin Metro agrees with you. Dublin Metro says Abubakar. John McMillan's second Mbappe goal in France's game with Poland. What was that like? What, what happened there? Just lashed it in, didn't uh, it? Yeah, he's sort of Kane style where you hit it as hard as you can. It's still accurate. All right, nice. Alex Emberton says that Brazil goal. Also that Brazil goal. And also that other Brazil goal well, was pretty special. All of those goals. <laughs> all the, of them, yeah. The Richarlison showboat in which, as Daniel knows, is not deemed acceptable in Nottingham. But right. it's fine in the World Cup with the headers. Mm. The uh, yeah, we, we yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but then he led. We still got a controversy, didn't we, with the dancing? So that was nice. Mm. Uh, Edward Greening says it's a very personal choice, but having Henward Van Hadi sung for the first time on the biggest of world stages will stay with me forever. That's I don't yeah. know what that is. Uh, was that Chesney Hawks? <laughs> yeah, that's the one and only backwards, like a satanic thing. I'm joking, Welsh listeners, although they're probably 
busy with other podcasts now, Welsh listeners. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just on a, on a slightly somber, not somber, upbeat, but once somber note. I mean, right. I, know, I know Denmark were bad, but yeah. Christian Eriksen became the first player, Danish player, to appear at World Cup in his teens, his 20s and his 30s. Which, okay. That's not you, somber. No, but if you go back to last year, then okay. the, the odds on that happening were, were very slim. So. All right. Okay. Would have been an odd bet to place at the point, yeah. Yeah, you'd some odd raised eyebrows. Mm. Uh, Matthew Leckie's goal for Australia, that was amazing. Saudi Arabia beating Argentina, incredible. We should say England, you know, coming into the tournament with their worst build-up ever, etc. and so on. And, you know, that last 16 performance, oi, oi, oi. Yeah, it, it's hard not to get carried away and France are the they kind of feel like the automatic brake pedal because I think before tonight I would have said England and France are the two best teams uh, I've watched in the tournament so far. I don't know what Portugal's one-off performance maybe tonight does to that, but England are up there. They are brilliant. Um, we talked to um, to Steve Holland uh, a couple of days ago and he, he, we were kind of asking him about Mbappe as, as is obvious. And he kind of said like, yes, we'll obviously make plans for Mbappe, but... We need to remember now that there are countries who are worrying about our players just as much as we're worrying about them, which might maybe wasn't always the case. But people don't want to face Phil Foden and Jude Bellingham and Saka and Kane in combination. And we should be very proud of that. And I think that suggests that England are going to try and, with some degree of caution, as, as they did against Senegal, but they're going to try and attack France. They're not going to try and kind of play with the back three and soak up pressure. I think my hunch is that they'll go with the back four and try and, do it the same way they've been doing it all through the tournament. Okay. It does feel like the, if this is Southgate's last tournament as England manager, he's kind of, you know, throwing the shackles off a little bit. I mean, you know, I guess the Euro showed that maybe being a bit defensive doesn't work out. So so why not go for it? So, I mean, that France-England game does promise to be an absolute classic. I know that now curses it to be terrible. Yeah. but They need to start getting some bookings, though. You, you're not going to win the World Cup with that getting any yellow cards. Still it would upset Gary Lineker if England won the really World Cup with no yellow cards. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, that game is coming up on Saturday. Before that, on Friday, two extremely juicy-looking quarterfinals as Croatia take on Brazil at 3 o'clock UK time and then at 7, Netherlands-Argentina. We'll look ahead to that match next. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. You're listening to the Totally Football Show with James Richardson, sponsored by LifeScore Bet. You can get the latest football betting odds at LifeScoreBet.com. It's over 18s only. Please bet responsibly and be gambleaware.org. Frank de Boer spelt the ball. Heel goed naar Dennis Bergkamp. Dennis Bergkamp. Dennis Bergkamp neemt de bal aan. Dennis Bergkamp. Dennis Bergkamp. Dennis Bergkamp. 
All right, Netherlands, Argentina, coming up for your Friday evening's entertainment. Could the Netherlands put an end to this whole messy World Cup business? Well, former Dutch international Ryan Barbel is an athletic columnist. So we thought we'd ask him what he thought. First of all, Ryan, as you know, Friday, Netherlands against Argentina, classic World Cup fixture. You, you played in one and you probably remember, I guess, the 98 one. You would have been, what, 11 or so watching Dennis Bergkamp? Uh, 11, 12, 11, yeah. Right. Correct. Correct. Yeah, so, I mean, great to have this fixture coming around again. Who, who's the favourites, do you think? Good question, actually. Um, I feel like because Argentina has Messi that they probably still the favourites. But if you look... Uh, in my opinion, both teams not necessarily have been playing how they potentially could play. However, the Netherlands, uh, the last game against the US, uh, played way better than uh, in, how they did in the, in the group stage. I still feel like um, there is uh, room for a lot of improvement uh, on both sides. But I think Argentina will be the favourites. Okay. Louis, Louis van Gaal is such a huge figure in, in global football, but I imagine in the Netherlands particularly so. And this looks likely to be the final act of uh, his pretty remarkable career. Uh, he's not always been the most popular of figures. In your autobiographical song, Open Letter, you say, Many hot genuf wallus have better seen. Danny Blind call me potency, told me better seen. What does that mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a, a little uh, anecdote of um, uh, an experience, uh, my my truth, my, my reality uh, of, of my little experience with Louis van Gaal personally. Um, I unfortunately never had him as coach, but um, yeah, the little experience that I had, um, the first experience that I had was he was um, sports director at Ajax in 2003. And uh, that was the time where I was in the under 19s trying to fight for my first contract. And um, yeah, he was the he was the director who had to officially give me that contract. Funny enough, Danny Blind was my coach in the under 19s. And uh, when I stepped in the office as a 16-year-old, um, you know, Van Gaal always is he's very intimidating when he has a conversation with his players one-on-one. -on -one. And, and he asked me, like, straight up, he was like, hey, Ryan, do you believe you deserve your contract? And and and, and the reason why he asked that question, because prior to that, he he we had a, a conversation with my agent and he told me the things that I had to improve, you know, heading, my left feet, a certain movement as a number nine, because I was playing number nine at the time. And um, so I had work to do. And then half a year later, he basically asked that question. Do you now feel like did you deserve your contract? Did you feel like you improved those things? And at that time, I was top scorer in the league. You know, um, I felt like I improved, uh, uh, you know, most of the things that we discussed. And so, I, yeah, playing out said, yeah, I, I, I deserve it. And he was like, do you really believe that? Well, I don't think so. That's literally how he said it. And he said, but because... Danny Blind, believe so much in you, you still get your contract. He said, <laughs> congratulations. So that was really like a moment like, okay, should I be happy or should I actually be upset? Because did I actually deserve it or did I not deserve it? So that was a little thing that I will, of course, never forget. And, and I never really shared it openly uh, as of today. Um, and yeah, in the song, it, it was a, a little, yeah, obviously, you know, a lyric to kind of share a little bit of light uh, on that topic. And, and, and yeah, you know, it's an interesting, interesting uh, person, Louis van Gaal. He certainly is. And that 
Louis van Gaal, Danny Blint, uh, good cop, bad cop, double act, is working now with the Netherlands national side. As you know, uh, Ryan, Netherlands is the biggest nation never to win the World Cup. Um, yeah. As a neutral, I just wonder if maybe it needs a, a manager who's prepared to to dabble in the the more pragmatic side of football to take the Netherlands all the way. Yeah, you know, um, being Dutch, uh, I feel like um, the topic mostly spoken about is is the way we play, right? And uh, just to win a game is is never enough. They're never really satisfied. They want to always win uh, with the most beautiful football, and if that's not the case, then we are not happy. We are not satisfied. Um, yeah, if you if you talk about different type of coaches um, from maybe different type of cultures or, or competitions or leagues or countries, you know they are more focused on on the points, on the results, and and, and if certain football, uh, I guess, takes you all the way to the World Cup, you know whether it's Italy at one point who was satisfied with being a defensive team. Um, hey, you know, it, it, it gave them the World Cup. And I maybe that's that little piece of the puzzle in terms of a mentality that we maybe need, yes or no. But at the end of the day, I think we as Dutch people probably never going to give that little piece up about winning something without playing beautiful football. So, uh, yeah, you know, the question is whether we can do it with beautiful football. Ryan Barbel there, whose thoughts you can also read on The Athletic. There's a great piece he did on uh, Cody Gakpo up there. One of the big stories, of course, of this uh, campaign for the Netherlands. And what a, what a campaign it's, it's been. A lovely return to the hotel after that victory over the USA where they're all, I'm not sure what, what, what music was playing, but they're all sashaying through the foyer and Van Gaal especially enjoying enjoying himself there uh crikey argentina of course looks strong but so do the netherlands woof i'm going to this one i cannot Ooh. wait yeah uh i yeah i i, I fairly fancy the netherlands uh, i think at some point a team is going to be able to shackle messi for long enough and the more i watch argentina the more they are kind of becoming this one-man team and lautaro is struggling and angel de maria is not quite getting the time he wants and Enzo Fernandez brilliant first game, and then kind of slightly regressed a bit. So yeah, I think I think the Dutch might might do them. Really, even with this rookie goalkeeper they've got in, Andries Noppert. Yeah, hello, hello, hello. Yeah. Why? Why hello, hello? Well, he was due to be a policeman. Ah, uh, yes. And gave it up to become the Dutch number one, which is a very natural step. So that well, okay. So you can fill us in on the details, but he'd not had much luck with his football career. Uh, so he, uh, I was reading it on The Athletic that his parents said, you know, maybe you should get a steady job. And uh, law enforcement was something that he'd looked into. Yeah, he, uh, I think he did some of his exams and his training. Okay. Um, before, yeah, before then getting a, a re-break, should we say, in football. And then very quickly, he, he played in Italy for a bit, I think. He went to Foggia, I think, for a oh. bit. And it kind of didn't work out there. But then he, he got the break back at Heerenveen and... Yeah, no stopping him now. Right. Instead of putting people behind bars, he plays underneath one. Yes. Maybe. I mean, yeah, maybe. Why not? The last will time. He, will he arrest Argentina's progress? Yeah, with some, after some criminal shooting from Latoure. Um, 
obviously the last time that Holland slash Netherlands got to the final, they were refereed by a former policeman, Howard Webb. Um, who had to resort to some fairly extreme uh, law enforcement in that match. Right. Okay. That was the second final after the other one they got to, which was against Argentina, of course. It's funny, you know, when we... Everything we, we rightly say about the locations of the last two World Cups, but we think this is a new development, not at all. 1978, the, yeah, the situation in Argentina when they got awarded the World Cup and the kind of tournament that it was at times... Pretty remarkable stuff. Anyway, there you go. Well, looking forward to that game on Friday and, of course, Croatia-Brazil in the afternoon. And we'll have a brand spanking new totally at the World Cup straight after those matches are played, in which we'll also look ahead to England, France and Portugal-Morocco. Very good. Right now, though, we better let Daniel go home because what time is it there in Qatar? Uh it's six minutes past one in the morning. Right, so right. I'm going to get a red metro line and then change Albida and then get a green metro line and go to our apartment. Oh, it's all become second nature to you. Now. You're, you're virtually a local now, aren't you, Daniel? I wouldn't say that for various reasons, but yeah, I mean, it's yeah, it's an experience. It's an exhausting city, I would say, Doha, but, and even more so for having one million new tourists in it. Mm. Very good, Daniel. Thank you for being with us this evening and look forward to catching up with you again soon. Also, thanks to Tim for dropping by and Duncan Alexander and Maher Mazahi, who was with us before, and Ryan Barbell, of course, and producer Charlie, who's back. Could you hear the difference, listener? Mm. All right, we'll be back on Friday. Do hope you'll be returning as well. For now, from all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Discover bonus video content by searching for The Totally Football Show on YouTube and see the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Totally Football Show is an athletic media company production and sponsored by LiveScore Bet. Get the latest football betting odds at livescorebet.com. It's over 18s only. Please bet responsibly and be gambleaware.org. The Athletic.